cafe.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Uh, now, before I begin begin my punditry, I just want to give you one heads up. Uh, those of us, well, not me, but a whole bunch of people in Northern California have been have been suffering from power outs, and it's so funny because that and what's happening down on the borders. Uh, these are uh, what do you call that? Uh, <laughs> they are they are reality, and they were uh, first imagined, thought of, projected in a wonderful show called Years and Years on HBO. It's a series. Oh, it's only six episodes, a mini series. It's been a while, but I I just have to tell you in case in case you're in case you're interested in looking at a. Uh, is it one of Cassandra's little stories? Uh, in years and years, you see all the um, what do we call that? What do we call that? The the stuff that's coming in the future that's going to scare the pants off us and do us the way. Anyway, it's got Emma Thompson in it. Uh, that's what hooked me on it. Uh, she plays a politician. Her persona recalls that of our own criminal clown. Uh, uh, DJ uh, Trump, she, uh, of course, uh, the script is a little different. She seems to know that her mask is only that, uh, you know, a, a public lie. Uh, on the other hand, uh, our president appears to be completely shapeless. Never mind. Uh, years and years. Check it out. I, I just found it fascinating. I actually went down and went back and watched it again. I'm surprised at me. Uh, anyway, ah, uh, yes, Stone's Throw, Stone's Throw, my producer, the inimitable Laura Privis, uh, one of KPFA's leading lights. Laura Privis once told me that I should write about death or talk about death. I mean, I'm 85. Now, I have been keeping some notes on the subject, but so far I have come to no conclusions. <laughs> I I do have thoughts, some thoughts about endings, endings, about loss. Of course, once you've lost everything, you don't have any other feelings of loss. That's about the time when memory is no more. 
I think all the time of all the writers that I love so much, uh, gone now, uh, physically dead, that is, uh, gone from among us, but uh, I do not think of them as dead at all. They are the voices that I hear every day. They keep me alive. All my dead dears. Edna St. Vincent Millay, the romantic um, uh, poet, I guess, not entirely a romanticist, but anyway, Edna St. Vincent Millay, my mother's generation, she wrote, quote, Read me, read me, do not let me die. The centuries pass. Lately, I read uh, James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. I I can't seem to get away from those two. Uh, now, James Baldwin died in 1987. <laughs> so much for dates. Toni Morrison died this year, 2019. The past is always present. Each voice, every book, poem, essay, play, whether it's print or the screen, I think for me the words stay warmest, longest. I go to bits and scraps of poetry when things are the darkest. Uh, now, in our century, oops, in the 20th century, our century is the 21st, pardon me, the films, the images, all this stuff on the screen, uh, these images, these uh, stories, they too live on and on. Uh, I think my lifetime has been almost entirely covered by film. I was born in 33. By that time, Hollywood was roaring. Movies everywhere. Uh, now, it's so strange. I keep thinking that the job of a commentator or a critic or a talker, well, we, uh, we pundits, you know, some of us have the illusion that we're trying to keep hearts open, that we're trying to help people to understand, you know, what might be the most exciting stuff, you know. Uh, Matthew Arnold, back in the 19th century, he said that the duty of the critic was to, to find the best that is thought and said. Well, that's quite, quite an order for today's world, yes. Back in the 19th century, I think maybe it was a little easier, maybe not, maybe not. You know, not not easy to find the best stuff in the library back then. You kind of had to go to the bookstore anyway. That was back in the day, the day, today. 
the screens, plural, uh, uh, all this stuff overpowers us. Our culture is uh, thick, thick, 24 hours a day, every moment. Uh, it is. It is our culture. Uh, I guess for several decades now, we couldn't think, 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 couldn't process information without it. We don't always process it, but in any case, back in the day, 1988, I wrote a book, well, I published a book. I tried to think about these things, especially about 20th century movies. I called it Mind Over Media. I was trying to be clever. (laughs) I don't know. I should have said something more specific, saying that it was about the movies that, uh, just that, uh, that imprinted my psyche. I was trying at that point to accept the role of the filmmaker as, uh, well, I just, I, I know that the filmmaker is in charge of our culture, but I wanted to think of filmmakers as major artists, you know, like uh, your Rembrandt or something, Uh, uh, your Shakespeare, or excuse me, Edward de Vere, the man who uh, wrote Shakespeare's plays. Anyway, all the great artists, they get these labels. Sooner or later, they they get the big big, uh, gold star. Now, I wonder always what the artists who lived so long ago, if they were alive today, if they were out there being creative, I wonder what mediums they would choose. Now, I'm assuming, I'm guessing that they felt pretty much the way we feel. That is, uh, you know, love and hate, that kind of thing. And I just kind of wonder how they hoped to reach an audience, wrong word, wrong word, how they hoped to reach others, uh, the people that they lived with, the world they lived in. Uh, I guess, I guess I assume that they hoped to move hearts and minds. Some of them, some of them were very sad, very sad about the times we live in. Yes, (laughs) looking Looking at Angmar Bergman, I would put him maybe not at the head of the list, but as one of the great masters. I call him the master builder. It's the title of one of his plays. Uh, Excuse me, one of Ibsen's plays. Good old Ibsen. (laughs) Oh, these Scandinavians, Ibsen Strindberg. I read them in college, and I was told that they were... uh, master playwrights, master builders. My essay on the master builder about Angmar Bergman is in my book, Mind Over Media, and I just wanted to uh, give you a little piece of what Angmar Bergman himself writes. Uh, Not a happy man, but I think that was, I think that was only part of the time... uh, He wrote this in the introduction to the English translation of The Seventh Seal. Uh, 
came out from Simon & Schuster back in 1960. The seventh seal has always been one of my, ah, what do we call it, touchstone films, yes. I sit down and watch it (laughs) with a friend, a relative even, the seventh seal, Ingmar Bergman. Now, introducing the English translation of the, the, what would we call it, the screenplay of the seventh seal, Agmar Bergman writes this. He writes, quote, It is my opinion that art lost its basic creative drive the moment it was separated from worship. It severed an umbilical cord, now lives its own sterile life, generating and degenerating itself. In former days, the artist remained unknown. Today, the individual has become the highest form and the greatest bane of artistic creation. The smallest wound or pain of the ego is examined under a microscope as if it were of eternal importance. The artist considers his isolation, his subjectivity, his individualism, consider them almost holy. Thus, we finally gather in one large pen where we stand and bleat about our loneliness without listening to each other, without realizing that we are smothering each other to death. The individualists stare into each other's eyes and yet deny the existence of each other. We walk in circles, so limited by our own anxieties that we can no longer distinguish between true and false, between the gangster's whim and the purest ideal. Thus, if I am asked what I would like the general purpose of my films to be, I would reply that I want to be one of the artists in the cathedral on the Great Plain. Footnote. That's a reference to the collective building of the cathedral at Chartres in the Middle Ages. Bergman goes on to write, I want to make a dragon's head, an angel, a devil, perhaps a saint. Make them out of stone. It does not matter which saint, angel, it is the sense of satisfaction that counts. Regardless of whether I believe or not, whether I am a Christian or not, I would play my part in the collective building of the cathedral. Well, now that's Angmar Bergman, who left us a few years ago. Uh, he lived to be old and quite, <laughs> quite mellow, it seemed to me. In his old age, it's a wonderful essay he writes in which he talks to James Baldwin. They're sitting in 
Bergman's office, I think in Stockholm anyway, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Baldwin looks out the window and he says, now he knows where Bergman gets his screen, uh, <laughs> what is it, his, his, uh, his, his, um, his scenes, his, the look of things, you know, the sad, dark uh, backgrounds in his films. And Anyway, he and Bergman were talking about all these motorcycle boys running around and uh, making so much trouble. And uh, Angmar Bergman asks James Baldwin how he thinks it will all end. James Baldwin said, oh, it will end with all of us killing each other in the streets. <laughs> There's another Cassandra. Right, yes, another Cassandra. It's so fascinating, this this business of who we are and whether or not it matters. Uh, Jimmy Baldwin is the, what do you call that, uh, I guess the saint, the saint for me of the the group of writers. I I'm not sure yet whether Toni Morrison is going to be going to be a saint. I think perhaps she just may be a great artist at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I collected last night all my James Baldwin articles and I tried to review them. There seems to be a revival of the uh not not just the work but the uh the persona the uh the public figure that Baldwin was for so many years uh I found an article by Daryl Pinckney back in March of 2017 it's called Under the Spell of James Baldwin is in the New York Review. Uh, in case you're interested, I will repeat that uh, Daryl Pinckney in the New York Review, 2017, issue of March the 23rd, called Under the Spell of James Baldwin. And uh, it's, what is that? It's It's very useful because it gives a tremendous number of plays, books, films, things by and about Baldwin in case you're a school teacher and you want to you want to go through this list and mark so many of them. Uh, basically the article is telling us that Baldwin is making a comeback. This was more than two years ago. But, uh, Binkney says that uh, Baldwin is quoted everywhere and some of his words are embossed on a great wall of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. <laughs> yes, he continues. Of all the participants and witnesses from the civil rights era, Baldwin is just about the only one we still read on these matters. Uh, he goes to list a number of books that are <laughs> kind of ignored. Uh, well, he says, only the autobiography of Malcolm X from 1964, right. He says, this seems to be, seems to be still with us. I, I can't imagine uh, that there's still, what is it, uh, still, well, I think there's plenty of room for the autobiographical 
books. Uh, all the black writers certainly have. Uh, uh, let's see, Maya Angelou has I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and uh, Richard Wright has Black Boy, and my favorite Baldwin book is uh, his autobiographical story, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. I look at that book often. It's uh, my favorite film recently. It's popped up again. I'm trying to remember when I first saw it. It was certainly in the in the sixties, was it? It was over at the Pacific Film Archive. Oh golly, uh, Alfred Woodard, Paul Winfield, all the great actors of our time and earlier times. Uh, Go tell it on the mountain, the terrible, terrible struggle that James Baldwin had with his father or his stepfather. Uh, he, he said in some essay somewhere, he said that his father scared him so, so bad, so deep, that he'd never been afraid of anything since. I had a somewhat similar experience, but I don't mean to carry on in the gratuitous way uh Anyway, James Baldwin said that Martin Luther King, a symbol of nonviolence, had done what no black leader, leader, no black leader had done before him, and that was to carry the battle into the individual heart. There you go. Uh, Baldwin refused to condemn. Malcolm X King's supposed violent alternative because uh, he said, that is, Baldwin said that the bitterness of Malcolm X articulated the sufferings of black people. Yup. I didn't miss much. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, there are several complaints about him. Yes, Harold Cruz says, all this sociology and economics jazz. I found that in The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, 1967. Okay, is it a moral question or is it about art? Could it possibly be about both? The first book for, uh, well, let's call it uh, Radical Young People, would be The Fire Next Time, 1963. That's where we start, okay? Raoul Peck's I Am Not Your Negro. Right, that's a good one. That's Portrait of Baldwin. Anyway, as I say, this particular article has all kinds of lists. Once again, the movie, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is available. It's on the HBO movie list. If you are a movie person, uh, I still I still love the scene in which the young James Baldwin, he's 13 or 14, gets enough money to go to the movies and he, he wanders in to Of Human Bondage, Of Human Bondage with Betty Davis playing this uh, wicked, mean, uh, vixen of a woman, uh, terrible, terrible, uh, she dying of... Uh, uh, a sexually transmitted disease, I suppose it's syphilis. <laughs> yes, anyway. Uh, 
she's screaming and yelling at the man that she hates him and had to wipe her mouth when he kissed her, and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Leslie Howard plays the sad, sad doctor who watches the deterioration of this woman. Anyway, uh, the thought of little James Baldwin sitting there watching this movie <laughs> recalls other stories of one of his teachers, a gay teacher of his, a woman who took him to the Orson Welles production of Macbeth. Uh, it was an all-black cast. They called it the Voodoo Macbeth. Now, there, <laughs> there was a story, if there ever was one. Anyway, uh, check out some of the articles. I think the more recent article, if you're the one, you're the sort of person, the one that read in TLS, the October issue of Times Literary Supplement 2019, October 4th. Mm -hmm. America Through the Mind of James Baldwin. The title here is What's Going On by D. Quentin Miller, and it mentions two books. I think they're more about the authors of these two books, but that's okay. Uh, Yes, What It Is, Ray's Family and One Thinking Black Man's Blues. Mm -hmm. It's by Clifford Thompson, right? Clifford Thompson is writing about his blues. He's the black man whose blues he's writing about, but he uses James Baldwin to illustrate uh, what's going on in his own psyche. Uh, The other book is called Living in Fire, James Baldwin. This is interesting. I might... I think I might read that one first. Uh, It's just basically about the legacy of James Baldwin. Uh, It's not a biography. It's definitely not. But it's kind of a, what do you call that? It's it's kind of a a light, uh, something to, to show us what we might be looking for now, especially with the, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Anyway, I'm digging into an essay of my own because uh, I think it was one of the, it was the last essay in a book of mine called Stone's Throw, in which I collected essays that I had written in the eighties. They're a very disparate group of essays, but the last one is an homage to James Baldwin because. I think that of all the writers I knew in those years, he is the last word for me. Uh, Baldwin, yes. James Baldwin left America in 1948 and commuted. He went from France back to Martin Luther King, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, He was at the intellectual center of a monumental movement which changed American consciousness forever. He gave us the radical awareness that led to the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and all the rest. This is all about James Baldwin being the daddy of us all. Uh, This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next time, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Go 
those in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up Dance Brigade presents Adelante, a 20th anniversary celebration of Dance Mission Theater, San Francisco's premier space for cutting-edge revolutionary culture. We will host an exciting evening of dance, storytelling, live music, and extravagant stilt walking to commemorate Dance Mission Theater's 20-year commitment to art and social justice. Performing will be Dance Brigade, Ilayo Dance Company, Makaya Soulforce, Dunya Dance and Drums, Susana Arenas, and more. You can hear the latest plans for Dance Mission and our exciting move to a new location. November 8th at 7.30 p.m. at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. For more information, visit our website at dancemissiontheater.org or call 415-826-4441. This wheelchair accessible event is a benefit for Dance Mission Theater and the new building campaign. Mm -hmm. 